1: This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And my guest today is Arthur Reber. We're going to be talking about origins of mind and cellular consciousness. This should be a super interesting call. So, Arthur, thanks for coming.
2: Okay. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah. So, um, are most people aware there is such a thing as cellular consciousness? And how did you get into this area of study?
2: Well, it actually goes back some time. Uh, this idea started brewing in my head, oh, gosh, I guess somewhere in the early 90s. Um, and uh, I, I wrote a book on um, unconscious learning. Uh, it was called Implicit Learning, um, like Human Intuition. And um, uh, I kind of sort of couldn't bite the bullet. I couldn't like bring myself to think that an individual cell, um, a unicellular organism, really could be conscious. Uh, and part of the problem was that, you know, I'm a cognitive psychologist, and we study human cognitive functions, and so we tend to be kind of focused on human consciousness, and, and that just seems so remote, so different from anything that could take place in a, a single cell organism. So I kind of shoved the idea. Uh, and in fact, in the 93 book, I actually had a paragraph where I discussed the issue, and, and I, as, you know, they say in games like uh, Black uh, Backgammon uh, you decline the option, and so I just you know hmm. said no, I'm not going to go down that road. It's a it's it's a bridge too far. And then about a year or two after that, I had this kind of strange epiphany. I, I was in the garden and I had planted some basil plants, and uh, I was taking a look, checking them out, and there was this caterpillar gnawing away at my precious plants. Now, actually, I don't garden anymore. I I watch I watch my wife garden. She's very good. She's gardener. And so I'm looking at this caterpillar that normally most people would think of as kind of a robotic entity that doesn't have sentience or or you know any kind of you know um, subjective life and that just seemed wrong. It just seemed wrong. The more I looked at it the more it just seemed to be thinking, to be processing information. If it was a robotic like, you know, entity, it would be doing the same thing over and over again. But it wasn't. It varied its act, as it were, depending upon circumstances. It was like it was making choices. You know, which leaf to chew on? Should I check for predators now? Um, so I sort of hatched this idea and I called it Caterpillars in Consciousness. And then the uh, British Psychological Society hmm. invited me to um, come and give one of the keynote addresses at their annual meeting. And I did. And I said, look, this is the perfect time to do this because. What better audience is there than a, a, a muster of British academics, you know, full of harm thing and table pounding and and you know snarky <laughs> questions and so forth, you know, challenging my sanity. So I gave the talk and the strangest thing happened. Everybody got up and walked out.
1: <laughs> I, I
2: turned to the moderator and I said, Did I offend them? What happened? She said, No, no, no. We had a dust-up last year over one of the keynote speakers. And it, it turned out so emotionally distra- distressing that we decided if we had a dicey topic, we were not going to allow questions. So I felt like, like I was completely, you know, snookered on this. I didn't get what I wanted. So then I sort of like did the obvious thing, which is you write it up and you send it to a journal. So I wrote the paper up. I sent it to um, a journal, Philosophical Psychology, uh, and I'm on the editorial board. So they were very nice. They accepted the article. And in it, I outlined you know, the basic notion that cells can, individual cells, can in fact be conscious. And when it comes to caterpillars, it's perfectly obvious. And it fell on the same kind of deaf ears. Nobody referred to it. No, Nobody cited it. And I figured, all right, the world's not ready for, for this um, issue. So I shoved it on the back burner again
1: do you think it would have been easier to start, let's say, with dogs and then to work your way down in terms of the apparent complexity to us of the organisms to get to the caterpillar and then to the cell instead of jumping to the cell?
2: No, and I'll I'll tell you why. Uh, Because when I I actually sat down to write this book um, and started really digging through the literature, I discovered that um, that approach has been tried. And it's been tried in... um, in you know the obvious ways, which is you start out looking at human consciousness and you try to log the things that we do, the cognitive cognitive functions that we have, the behaviors we engage in, the memory systems, our affect, and um, you sort of log those and get a, a good sense of what the human you know conscious experience is. And then you try and find the underlying neurological foundations of this: what brain centers, what brain pathways. Uh, what areas in the brain are responsible for these kinds of actions, behaviors, thoughts, and cognitions. And then you start working your way back down the evolutionary tree. And you're looking for either the behaviors that look like they could be the precursors of our cognitive functions, or you look for the neurological brain structures that look like they could be the analogs of human brain structures. And so you're looking for the place along the evolutionary tree where you can identify what looks like it began here. And the interesting thing is when you look at this research, you find that every researcher that's done this finds consciousness in the species that they specialize in. So the specialists who deal with avian psychology, they're convinced that birds, especially corvids, crows and ravens, they have a, a legitimate consciousness. If you look at the entomologists who study insects, and I mean, there's a well-known fellow named Carol Tenkate uh, who studies bees, and his, his his research with bees is brilliant. And he's absolutely convinced that consciousness begins with insects.
1: A lot of people start with the anthropomorphic view, but then you said even when someone studies another creature, they start with a view based on that creature. So you yep. said a... Insect researchers think, okay, that's where it begins, and birds, yep. that's where it begins. It
2: right. So the fun part of that is it's everywhere, and it's where you look. And, of course, if you're a specialist in one area or another, that's where you look. So, for example, you get other people like uh, uh, McPhail, uh, Ian McPhail. He's a linguist, and he's convinced that consciousness is not possible without language. So he won't give any species credit. For having a, you know, a genuine, you know, mind, unless unless they're part of the, the you know, the, the, the linguistic species, which right now that's basically us. So you get these funny kinds of um, uh, disco discoordinations. Now all of these people are confronted with what's basically known as the emergentists' dilemma, the emergentists' problem. They have to explain why, when you get a brain like a, a bumblebee. This bumblebee is conscious, has consciousness, but the species that preceded it, that were simpler, didn't. What happened in evolution? This suddenly bingo consciousness springs into existence, where just you know one geological, one cosmic moment earlier, it wasn't there.
1: I even spoke to a guy today, as a scientist, and uh, we were talking about humans, and you know I said well, someone sleeping, conscious is uh, a baby mm-hmm. that's in a certain stage of fetal development conscious, and when does it magically turn on if so? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, but you see, of course, the human is conscious, and there are going to be suspension states. Or there are sleep states. I mean, one of the questions that comes up when you start talking about cell biologists is, does a single-celled organism sleep? Do bacteria sleep? Well, it turns out that they don't sleep like we sleep <laughs> or, or like a cat sleeps, but they do have down periods where the metabolic functions. Uh, drop, and it's almost as if it's a period for uh, uh, for recovery, you know, for biomechanical recovery. Um, so the more I looked at this, the more it seemed almost impossible to play this looking backward game to identify the origins of consciousness. And the reason is because it was there all along. The reason everybody finds it in whatever species that they decide to look at is because it's been there from the very beginning. And now you start reading cell biology. This took me into a whole, <laughs> a whole other realm that, that I had never looked at in my life. And what you find is cell biologists have for decades, sometimes many decades, been perfectly comfortable with the notion that cells are conscious. And in fact, uh, Lynn Margulis, one of the, uh, the great cell biologists of the century, um, uh, wrote a paper called The Conscious Cell, and, and I mean, it's like it didn't even need any any further argument or explana- explanation. It was just obvious that cells were conscious. So you start looking through this literature, and what you discover is that bacteria, prokaryotes, the simplest living organisms on the planet, they have astonishing skills. They learn. They can learn patterns. There's this wonderful experiment where they have you know a petri dish and it's full of bacteria, and they feed it. Uh, um, lactose which is the sugar that they really like and they slurp it up and then they stop take a short break and then they put a a, a concentrated maltose solution in now maltose is another sugar and they also absorb that but they don't like it as much and in order to um to get maximum benefit from it they have to adjust their um nutritive functions they have to adjust the way their biomedical uh uh, metabolic functions to maximally absorb it. So now you keep, you repeat the process. Lactose, maltose, lactose, maltose, lactose, maltose. And what you find is you give them lactose, you remove it, and they immediately begin to anticipate the maltose by changing their underlying um, nutrient functions. And you now fool them by giving them a second dose of lactose. They have trouble... Uh, Up taking it because they've already made the adjustment to anticipate the new one. So they're learning a pattern, and this is astonishing. Are there, are there any uh, evidence of micro salivations from the bacteria?
1: I'm just teasing them.
2: They can excrete uh, um, uh, uh, waste matter, but but no, they don't. There's no <laughs> there's no salivary anticipation. No, we I, I don't think we're going to get Pavlov's of Pavlovian the salivary response from a bacterium, but you can certainly get this anticipatory reaction. By the way, they also communicate with each other. And they communicate by re- by releasing um um compounds that either that ha- that have um have a dramatic impact. So um one of the things that bacteria are really good at is is clumping together and forming mats, call them microbial mats. Problem with microbial mat is when it starts getting large, is that the, the, the bacteria in the interior in the center, they start getting into nutritive des- deficits, because the food stuff is in the periphery that surrounds the mat. So the bacteria on the edge, they're you know in good shape in terms of nutrients, but they also have a problem because the predators are out there, the toxins are out there, the viruses are out there, and so um, they have to protect themselves. Um, so while they enjoy the extra food, they have this you know this other dangerous component in the environment. Bacteria on the interior have the opposite circumstance. There's less food for them, but they're protected. If the nutrient balance gets so low that they now begin to basically, you know, be in real uh, deficit, nutritive de- de- deficit, they will send out molecules to communicate by sending um, information across the mat to their um, their, their brethren and sister in that they don't have genders, um, to their, their fellow bacteria on the periphery that basically says, hey, slow down. Stop reproducing. Stop gobbling up all the damn food. We're really having a tough time in here. And they do. And now the food flows into the interior of the mat. The cells in the center now recover from their nutritive deficits. Now they send out another signal that says, we're fine now. And the guys on the periphery Now they begin reproducing and they begin, you know, scarfing up the food at the rate they were before.
1: Quick question there. I wonder if the analog in um, embryology happens, you know, this cell-to-cell communication. Let's say you're, you know, you're you're forming the liver of a person. This makes me think that there would be cell-to-cell communication, just like in a biofilm of where to stop and how to shape the liver and how far to go.
2: There's absolutely no doubt about this. Absolutely that, all of the cells of the body are communicating with each other in a whole series of complex ways um, uh, but but let 's go back to the biofilm for the, for a second because there's a point I want to sure, make sorry. it's it 's kind of subtle, but what this is is altruism. This is a primitive form of altruism because the cells on the periphery are putting themselves at risk by slowing down their uh, um, uh, absorption of food products by stopping or or or, or slowing down um cell division rates, they're putting their DNA at risk, which is a classic you know, base point where the, the people who argue about the genetic basis of altruism uh, happens to be. It's you're putting yourself at risk. You're putting it, your DNA at risk. This is you know Dawkins' selfish gene notion. But you see this behavior in bacteria. And not only do you see it within a colony, you see it across colonies. They have two biofilm uh, that, that have been set up and they're in a, uh, a Petri dish where they can communicate with each other. And now they control the, the nutritive uh, concentrations so that they put one uh, one colony uh, in nutritive deficit, but they have uh, an abundance for the other colony. The colony that is in a deficit state will send out now a slightly different uh, molecule because it has to travel across the medium but it's the same basic principle, which is, hey, we're in trouble over here. You guys, can you slow down a little bit? And they do, and the other colony makes adjustments in its in its bio, uh, biological functions until the first colony says, okay, we're fine. So this this happens across across bacterial species as well. So I think this is uh, stuff is fascinating. So you, you look, the more you look at this stuff, the more you look at the fact that um, bacteria have they can learn, they learn patterns. They can communicate with each other. They have memories. They form memories that can last up to two hours, which is an eternity in a bacterium's life. And you realize they've got to be conscious. They have to have subjectivity. They have to have an experiential, um, phenomenal state. There is something it is like to be a bacterium. There's nothing it's like to be a toaster, but there's something it's like to be a bacterium. So that's where consciousness begins. A
1: couple of quick questions about this. Um, Well, uh We'll get on to in a second. I wanted to ask you about viruses and phages and, mm-hmm. ions and stuff like that. But before we get to that, um, have scientists observed a hierarchy in the biofilm? You know, like who is running the show in the biofilm and how decisions get made? Is it completely collectively or is there, again, a hierarchy of cells like in an ant colony or a bee colony? Is there a queen? Yeah.
2: No, it doesn't seem to have anything like that. They do They do engage in quorum sensing and that is a way in which they can judge the size of the uh, of the colony and they can make adjustments in it. Um, but there, it, it, it appears as though, as, as, as far as I can tell, cell biologists may know more about this certainly than I do, but it appears as if each of, of the individuals is acting as an individual. But what you're hinting at, or what you're, you're making me think about, is one of the really big problems in um, in cell biology which is how do you get a multicellular organism? Multicellular organisms emerge from, develop from, evolve from individual organisms, individual uh, uh, cells that have their own internal representational system. But when you get a multicellular species, what happens is it has a singular experience. That, that those bumblebees, the 10K studies, those bumblebees have you know millions and millions of cells. Each of them has its own representational system, but they all collaborate and coordinate to produce a singular phenomenal experience that the bumblebee has, just like you and I do. Our hmm. trillions of cells in our body are all doing their thing, but somehow or other, it all gets coordinated and collected together to give us a singular conscious experience. And this is this this is a struggle.
1: And and at what point does that happen? How many cells make
2: that happen? I I think it happens at the point at which multicellularity uh, is solved. See, multicellularity is a problem, and it took evolution a long time to work it out. It took over a billion years because for the longest time there was nothing but single cell species. There was nothing but prokaryotes and archaea. And at a time just before the uh, uh, the Cambrian explosion. Where there was this huge, you know, uh, 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 well, explosion is the only word for it, um, just so many species emerged beginning at about uh, 540 um, a million years ago. And over the first 60 million years of the Cambrian, uh, and it's astonishing array of of species emerged. And in fact, virtually all of of the clades that exist now, um, the, their their roots go back to that period and um this happened there's a lot of speculation about why this happened um there are a couple of israeli uh, uh psychologists that have written a lovely book uh called the sensitive soul um and their argument is that at the beginning of the cambrian they discovered a kind of learning mechanism which they call universal associative learning and they argue that this learning mechanism is what gave rise to consciousness but what was happening at the exact same time was the discovery of the solution the emergence of multicellularity and once you have a multicellular species the avenues of evolution that open up are myriad there're just so many more paths that you can that you can go down to produce new and different kinds of species i don't think that there was any new learning that took place i think this kind of associative learning existed in bacteria as well I think what happened is the multicellularity issue was solved. And biologists are working like hell trying to figure out what the underlying mechanism is. They don't know, but that's okay. We don't know a lot of things. Quick question
1: low. here. Um, you know, bacteria are single cells, but when they form a biofilm, do you think that they then form a collective uh, experience that resembles what a multicellular creature experiences?
2: I don't think they do until they develop. Um, Linkages between the cells, and one of the other issues that comes up here is um, the development of neural tissue because when you have neurons, you can do a lot of things you couldn't do before you had neurons, for example, they're fast for one, um, and you know much faster than the way information can be uh, transmitted through a um, a colony of individual bacteria so um, when that happens, things begin to change, but in my mind. What we're looking at, you know, the type token distinction uh, in philosophy, uh, you refer to things as types, individual types. A type is an entity that can be identified and distinguished from some other type. So we have um, we have types, we we have books and books are different from toasters. But within the type of things called books, we have lots of different kinds of books and they're different tokens. So you have a variety of different tokens, each one of which is a book and it's classified under the same type book, similar with toasters. But there's no overlap between the types of toasters and the types of books. Here's the point. When people talk about consciousness emerging at different points in time, in different species, they're talking about different types. They're saying the type of consciousness that a bee has is different from the type of consciousness that a frog has. And I'm saying no, they are different tokens of a singular underlying type, and the type we're going to call it by the most generic name around sentience. They are sentient creatures. All sentient creatures share some things. They share a self-awareness, the capacity to distinguish thee from me, the uh, ability to have internal subjective uh, senses, to have affect, to judge good things from bad things. And these are the core functions that, that make up sentience. And what you see over evolution, what you see over the hundreds of millions of years and billions of years of evolution, is the emergence of a wide myriad of tokens, each of which expresses as fundamental sentience in a different way. So that's well, my sorry. basic argument.
1: When you say that bacteria then are sentient?
2: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when you look at the various theories that people have put forward about consciousness, philosophers have put them forward, artificial intelligence researchers have put them forward, cognitive psychologists, neuroscientists, they tend um to look at cognitive functions. They tend to look at learning. Uh, I told you about that book by Ginsberg and Jablanca. Um their whole theory um is hoist on on, on the scaffolding of this uh universal associative learning mechanism so they talk about memory they talk about learning they talk about decision making they um, um, talk about the kinds of things that cognitive psychologists like to talk about particularly when they talk about human functions but that's not where it begins it begins with affect it begins with emotion it begins with feeling bacteria have feelings they can detect temperature gradients and they detect that they have swum into um, an environment that's too cold. They don't like it. It feels uncomfortable to them. They will take their little, you know, flagella rotors and, and shift the direction in which they rotate, and they will back out, and they will return to the environment they were in before. Now, this is important because they remember where they were before. They know where. They know not to go forward, but to go back and so they do they will return to a place that's more comfortable. If you if you put one of them in contact with with a, a a salt molecule which they find really aversive, they will retreat, they will move away from it. If you put them in graded concentrations of food nutrients where they can detect it as they move forward, they get a greater concentration of nutrients, they will continue to move forward.
1: A couple of experiments here I think that, that maybe they have been done or they should be done. What if you um If you expose a few bacteria to salt and, you know, sensitize them to it, like expose them a bunch of times and then put them back with a colony of other bacteria and then they form a biofilm and then you test it to see the sensitivity of the biofilm. Maybe like the bacteria that were salt, you you know, salt punished are on the right side of the biofilm and you put salt on the left side of the biofilm and see if it reacts differently than a biofilm that doesn't have cells that were primed in this way. Has that been done?
2: That's brilliant. I love that. I don't know if it's been done. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I do know that they have done experiments where they will flood a colony with, um, with a uh, an unpleasant salt solution. And uh, what happens is because they haven't done it in the way that you've described, the ones that I know about, they flood the entire colony with a salt solution. And what you get is um, they make a metabolic adjustment that enables them to withstand The salt, the concentrated salt solution, without without dying. It basically they they learn to reduce uh, the death rate from the solution. Now, this particular species that they worked with, it's called a sessile um, lifestyle, which is they put down a a foot pad uh, on a piece of detritus and they stay there. They don't they don't swim around. Um, But when they divide, the daughter cells swim away and they go off to uh, to another part of the environment. And they and they establish um, th- their own, you know, uh, uh, spot to live in. And now, if you reintroduce the salt solution, the original, the mother cells, they don't die at a high rate because they remember the previous experience with the salt, the concentrated salt solution, uh, and they can make immediate adjustments in their metabolism to protect them from it. But the daughter cells, they don't have the memory any longer. And there's no need to hold on to the memory because they've gone to a new location, which, as so far as they know, and I know using the word know for a bacterium is weird, but as far as they know, no salt solutions are coming their way. So they die at a very high rate, but, but the, mother, the mother cells survive. So we know that they can make these kinds of metabolic adjustments, and we know they can hold on to this memory for up to two hours, um, which is, again, remarkable. But whether or not they could communicate this information, across the colony, that's fascinating.
1: It's just a feeling, but I have the distinct feeling that in a biofilm, let's say, you know, you have the bacteria that are on the outside of it and on the inside of it. And they essentially are changing their, I don't know to what extent they're changing, but they're changing, you know, they're changing, let's say their, their DNA or other cellular structures, internal structures yep. to respond yep. to this outside stimuli. So they're becoming different bacteria in a way. So I would think that there has to be a hierarchy even in a biofilm, that temporarily there would be established one. That's, I mean, so here's another experiment that I just thought of. Maybe this would elucidate it. So is there a molecule, and I'm sure there is, that fools the bacteria? A bacteria may think it's food. Then when it takes it in, it actually poisons it and kills it. So what if you had such a molecule and you exposed some bacteria to it and some of them survived, they had the memory of this, then again put them into a biofilm and they were on the right side and the left side you now exposed to this, this molecule that that would you know trick them and hurt them when they internalized it. Could the colony yeah, communicate fast enough to avoid it?
2: Um well again it's there's a variation on the same basic idea. But those molecules are called a- antibiotics. Um and we know that they can react to antibiotics by making adaptations in their DNA over generations because that's how you get uh, um you know um bacterial resistance to antibiotics. Um, bacteria are very good at changing their DNA. Uh, you know what a CRISP, the CRISPR technique is, right? A bit, yeah. Okay. So you, you know who invented CRISPR? Bacteria. Yes. They're they're the ones that, that invented CRISPR. They're the ones that figured out how to take a snippet of the virus that's invaded and use it to modify their own DNA to protect themselves, to develop an immune reaction, uh, which will defeat the virus. And it was people like Jennifer Doudna. Uh, at Berkeley, who will, I predict, win the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine soon, she and her collaborator. Um, and, uh, they're the ones that, that discovered it, figured out how to, um, take snippets of, uh, using the CRISPR techniques, take snippets of DNA from any arbitrary cell and, and modify it, uh, change it around, which of course has led to, you know, this recent, uh, flurry about the, the, uh, uh physician in China who um, used the CRISPR technique to modify the cells um, of a fertilized egg of an embryo. Um, He's been severely um, chastised for this because there's an international moratorium on doing this because it's very, very tricky stuff. Very deep, uh, important ethical issues that are involved in it because the technique is so strong that you can can literally get designer babies using it. Um, but that's another topic. Okay. Well, I mean, do you have a specific topic? Because I was going to raise one that you haven't asked that I, I suspect listeners might be intrigued by. Our I did. I just God. wanted to ask you briefly, if you could hold it in your mind, I want
1: to ask you briefly about viruses and phages and prions. You know, they're even supposedly simpler than bacteria, but they yep. seem to have collective behavior. They seem to have signaling amongst them. So are they sentient and why or why not?
2: I am agnostic on viruses. I'm willing to have my mind made up by the data um, but it, I, 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 I i honestly do not know my my fundamental uh, axiom is that life and sentience are coterminous as soon as you have life, you have this sentient experience when the organism dies, it goes away and um the the, the notion that you could have a living thing without this kind of internal subjective experiential state, to me, makes no sense. The environment um, is in constant flux. Temperatures are changing. Light levels are changing. Nutrient levels are changing. The nature of, of uh, local predators and toxins are constantly changing. It just doesn't make sense to me to think that an organism could survive that kind of environmental uh, chaos if all it had were uh, you know, DNA-programmed robotic responses. Because that would mean you'd have to have a different one that evolved for each of the individual functions that that the species can display. And this is crazy. this just, it makes no sense from an evolutionary biological point of view. The thing that makes sense is you have this singular underlying that's called a mental state, a mental representation. As soon as you get that, you now can, and this is the key, differentiate good from bad. You can differentiate too hot from just right. You can differentiate toxin from nutri- uh, nutritious molecule. And as long as you can t- make these these affective decisions and judgments, you have an internal state. You have internal representation, and now you're on your way to becoming a human being. It's going to take you a long time, but you're now on your way. And if you didn't have these underlying, you know, subjective states, I don't see how you could how you can get evolution. I've argued with this with Dan Dennett. Dan, Dan's, you know, he's probably the most uh, important philosopher alive. And uh, we've been friends for over 30 years. And there's a long section in the book, The First Minds, uh, criticizing Dan's work. And, and I sent it to him. I said, have I got you right? Uh, and he said, yes, you do. And I said, well, why don't you agree with me? And he said, I just don't agree with you. He said, I think you're wrong. I think all of these early... Um, Behaviors that you're describing are all handled by this robotic mechanism, uh, and and they don't they don't have any sentience or consciousness. So we've agreed to disagree, uh, and and there that is. Well, if um
1: if cells are conscious and they're sentient, where is the where is the sentience? If you pick apart a part of bacteria, you know, we're back to what happened over the past several thousand years, and especially the the recent few hundred years. You know, where is life? Where's where does life come from? Where does it reside in a in a Organism where does consciousness reside? Where is it? We well, I
2: think it? I think of the bacterium is experienced as, as a, a singular affective state Entirely by by the by the whole organism now, but but there are ways to answer the, that question like uh, for example if you if we begin understanding um, what aspects of the DNA code are giving rise to this kind of experiential uh, um, sense then we can use CRISPR techniques to go in and remove those, those, you know, snip out the pieces of DNA that look like they're coding for the gene that produces this kind of sentience. And if we've got it, then the organism should become unconscious and probably should die, would die. Uh, and so in principle, you would be able to find these things um, uh, encoded in, in, in the DNA by using the CRISPR technique. But the question about what gives rise to this my friend Frantisek uh Belushka, he's at the University of Bonn in Germany, and um mm. we began corresponding um oh gosh, a year or so ago. And we got together in Montreal last summer and uh we began collaborating. And uh, the first paper came out just a month or two ago in the journal Bioessays. And in it we make this fundamental argument about the co you know, coterminous nature of, of of life and, and sentience. And at the same time, we try to identify candidates, what the possible biomechanical um, uh, physiological um, uh, mechanisms could be that would produce sentience. And they're all built around the notion of irritability of membranes. Um, membrane irritability is known to be a critical element in in, in the life of, of single cell species, of prokaryotes. Uh, and it has to do with the kinds of changes that take place when um, um, objects, molecules, uh, make contact with with the outer membrane of the bacterium. And so we've got a couple of them. Uh, um, um, Fertashek is, is he's the cell biologist on that. I, I'm not. Um, and hopefully they're 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 subject to um, uh, empirical investigation because each of them has fairly specific um, aspects. Of of membrane excitability that should be there if 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 it is one of the mechanisms there could be more than one mechanism operating we 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 honestly really just don't know yet
1: yeah because life acts in a fundamentally different way than non-life at any yes. at every level it appears
2: yes yes absolutely um, a couple of really interesting elements here we haven't gotten to let me let me introduce I'll just give you the the words and you can pick the one you'd like to talk about one word is anesthetics. The other word is plants. Okay. You choose. I guess both both
1: sound interesting. Maybe start with anesthetics and maybe talk a little bit about plants after that.
2: Sure. See, one of the interesting things is um, bacteria are sensitive to anesthetics. They desensitize them, just like they do with you and me. It's like they do with every mammal and virtually every species on the planet. Why? Why would a bacterium be sensitive to anesthetics if it didn't have experience? If it didn't have painful experiences, that the anesthetic would operate in a way to minimize—let's just put it in Buddhist terms—minimize suffering. It doesn't make any sense. So what the very what fact the bacteria that bacteria
1: that are anesthetized, but like what, how do they behave? They, they,
2: they go to sleep. They're, their overall functions are compromised, just like just like any other species. Some species of bacteria actually produce their own anesthetics, and that's what leads you to plants. Plants do the same thing. Most of the anesthetics that we have come from plants, opium. Why would plants produce anesthetics if they didn't have experiences? Now, in in the first minds, I was agnostic on plants. I discussed them at some length, and I frankly couldn't make up my mind. But I wrote that section before I met František, <laughs> and František and 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 his friends and a couple of other uh, biologists, uh, uh, Paco Cabo, for example, at the University uh, in in Spain, um, has also been uh, collecting some very impressive data uh, from plants that makes makes me think that in fact plants are probably sentient. Also, we tend not to think about them. As being sentient, and I think one of the reasons is we think they don't move. They don't locomote. They have rigid cell walls. They put down roots and they stay there. But as, as Paco pointed out to me in, in an email exchange, plants do move. They just move slowly. They send out tendrils that are sensitive to to, uh, to pressure from from uh, uh, objects that they come come in contact with. The roots that are sent out underground are sensitive to nutrient contents, and will shift in different ways depending upon the circumstances, the environment, uh, in the soil. So I asked František. I said, "Well, look, if this is true, and and it like it, it probably is. I'm at the point where I'm saying it probably is. Ethical vegans are in trouble. What are they going to do? <laughs> yeah. And and I as I said, I said František, and he laughed, and he said. They will eat the plants that want to be eaten, and there are, mm. there the plants Ooh. that want to be eaten are those that propagate by having the species that eats them have them pass through their alimentary canal and deposit the seeds someplace else, which maximizes the range of 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 the of their DNA. Mm. So those are the one, those and and they're the ones that taste good also. Um, been uh because they made them taste good because that's the way in which they maximize their uh, uh their distribution yeah, yeah. see here's roots yeah but 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 let me let me sort of get, engage in a little a little uh, evolutionary biology with you because there's an important- there's an important issue here that that has to be confronted and frankly i haven't seen anyone confront this but before I did in my book um evolution has a um, a hierarchical um feature to it. it. It's based upon a simple notion that if we discover something that works, we're going to keep it. It's going to become part of the foundation upon which later evolving species will be built. So for example, once you get a vertebrae and you get, you know, to get the order vertebra vertebrata, um, it never goes away. You never give it up. There, there's one species that seems to have given up its, its, its spine. It is it's the hagfish, and um, the, the the researcher who who uh, uh, did the final analysis that showed that in fact it did almost certainly give up its 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 spine called it a case hmm. of spectacular degeneration. So this principle holds, and it's a problem for people like me and my theory, which I call, by the way, the cellular basis of consciousness or the CBC. Uh, theory. If you believe, as I do, if the argument is solid, that sentience occurred with the very beginnings of life, and it's a highly adaptive such, I mean, an essential function of life. Plants evolved long after these prokaryotes appeared on the planet. Plants evolved because uh, a eukaryote, which is a single, uh, 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 a the simplest eukaryotes are single-celled organisms. In a sense, they're single-celled. In some senses, they're multi-multicellular. But it incorporated a cyanobacteria. Cyanobacteria was is a species that has that use photosynthesis, and yeah. um, and it, it it retained the the rigid cell wall. And this chimera, this 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 brand new species, was the first plant. It was an algae, and all the plants on the planet. Are evolved from that single occurrence. Now, if those, if the eukaryote and that prokaryote were both sentient, then the end product, the chimera, would have been sentient as well, because you don't right. give it up. So, right. from that perspective, all plants should be sentient, in some sense. One example of this that
1: jumps out at me is uh, you know I was reading a Viralution by the name, something. Um, but he talks about the hummingbird and the plants that it feeds feeds from, you know, that it gets its nectar from. And the shape of the opening in the plant is perfectly mirrored to the beak of the uh you know, the hummingbird yes. It's just long enough so when the hummingbird feeds the, off the nectar, the pollen goes at the right spot. I mean, how yep. did that happen?
2: Well, because what happens is here's this little flower. And it's got, it's kind of okay. Um, uh, These hummingbirds have been hanging around eating other things, but it would really be neat if they would pollinate me. Uh, And so um, you get natural selection kicks in. You get natural variations in in the shape of this sort of like trumpet-like effect, affair of the flower. And uh, some of them are more attractive to hummingbirds than others are. And so they're the ones that are going to be more likely to be fertilized. And therefore, more likely to have their genes in the next generation, and then over time, these things you know come together. It's also likely the case that it went the other way, that uh, individual variation in hummingbird beak and, and and texture and shape of the tongue was better adapted to certain <clears throat> certain flowers than others. And uh, um, say so there's a there's a flower that's particularly good in in nectar, uh, and so the hummingbirds whose uh, beaks and tongues uh, match this more uh, efficiently than than their brethren uh, who have, you know, slightly different uh, shape to the beak and the tongue. But they're, they're going to have an advantage in their DNA. And these things will accumulate now over multiple generations.
1: But now we're back to the neo-Darwinism. I mean, what, what, uh,
2: this is, again, just
1: pure speculation, but I think the plant, through its senses, literally probably had to see the hummingbird and had to feel it you know what and you know how would it know just by the tip of its beak so let's say it had a very shallow area where the nectar was how would the how would the plant know just from the tip of the beak of the hummingbird that it should extend downward you know how would it know without tactile response without maybe visual without other some kind of chemical evaluation how would it even know right. to evaluate this thing and of you you're
2: you're, you're, it? you're bringing in epigenetic factors here where the uh, the way in which the plant grows and develops over time um, ha- has an impact on, it, on its own DNA. It's it's kind of interesting because epigenetics uh, factors have have um, um, uh, reinvigorated Lamarckianism. Um, and uh, yeah, there's probably some component that, that's there. But remember, these things take a bloody long time. I mean, it takes millions of years for these these the hummingbirds and the flowers, you know, to get together so that. You know, what we end up looking at now looks, um, hey, that's kind of neat. How did that happen? Well, it took a damn long time for it to happen. See, these things—it's really funny. People tend to forget how long geological time actually is. I mean, uh, uh, the Earth was basically formed in its current state about four billion years ago, but but life didn't didn't occur for you know, well, probably took. Five hundred million years, uh, maybe closer to a billion. So you know, aliens could have could have come. You know, come down, take a look, and say, oh, no, nothing's happening here. Clap in their ships and go away. They wait a thousand years, which you know, I mean, you know, with the the common era is only two thousand years old, right? They would come back in a thousand years they take a look. Oh, still nothing happening. Then they come back in another thousand, nothing's happening. They come back one million of these one thousands. A million of them and they go, oh look, finally there's a prokaryote right it took a long time for it to happen and there's a whole field of research um, called origins of life and um, they meet on a regular basis they have conferences they have journals that they publish in and what they these these are, are biophysicists and evolutionary biologists that are looking for the actual real life mechanisms that took place during this extended period of time that gave rise to life. And what they're discovering is um, there's shortcuts. And this is really interesting stuff. They're just beginning to crack, you know, uh, uh, the code on these things. What, What are the arguments, you know, that goes back to the creationists like is that, you know, it's called the blind watchmaker argument. Um, yeah. So you you know, you walk along a beach and there's a watch and you pick it up, and you go, Somebody made this. This this not just happened here by accident. And so the argument is you look at life, you look at human beings, somebody made them. The creator had right. to have made them. You'd never get this by chance alone. Um but it turns out that there are shortcuts where you get certain molecular compounds, um, proteins that uh, um, just, they come together by chance, you know, in, in mid-ocean rifts probably. And then, you know, a drop of magnesium shows up or potassium or something. I don't remember the details on these. And suddenly you get the precursor for RNA. You, be, you Suddenly you get molecules that look like they could be used as the basis for getting RNA. And they're pretty sure that RNA preceded DNA. I mean that seems fairly clear, um, hmm. and so these shortcuts, if they can discover enough of them, and, and then you can uh, introduce them in you know in an artificial laboratory environment, you ought to be able to produce eventually a prokaryote, a genuine living organism. Um, that's a couple of decades down the road, but the but the interesting research I think is in finding these uh, biomechanical shortcuts. Because otherwise, the problem really looks almost you know, unsurmountable. It just looks too complex, too difficult. Um, I, I talked earlier about this emergentist' dilemma, that you know the people who think that uh, consciousness first shows up in insects, they have to explain what the underlying biomechanical and evolutionary mechanisms are that uh, emerged and makes it emerge at this point. I have an emergent dilemma myself. But my emergent dilemma, I think, is easier to resolve than the others, because the others are all derived from what David Chalmers infamously called the hard problem, which is how does the brain make the mind? They're merely rephrasing it. How does the bee's brain make the mind? Or how does a cuttlefish's brain make the cuttlefish mind? And if you answer for the cuttlefish, it's not going to do any good for the bee. But if you answer for the prokaryote, it's, it's good for everybody. It handles everything that evolved from that point on.
1: So, Arthur, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to read your books and to uh, take this further?
2: Okay. Well, the, the book is called The First Minds, uh, Caterpillars, Caryotes, and Consciousness. Um, it came out a couple of months ago. It's published by Oxford University Press. It's available at all of the obvious places. That is, Oxford University Press's website has it. Uh, Amazon has it. Barnes & Noble has it. Um, your local bookstore, if it's you know an academic bookstore, um, might have it. Um, it's not written for academics. It's written for you know that that cliched cohort, the intelligent layperson, uh, and it's written for that group of individuals with an effort to maintain sufficient scientific clarity and, and foundation, so that I don't embarrass myself uh, in front of <laughs> cell biologists neuroscientists. Well very good I it. thank you for coming on the podcast I, I really appreciate oh, it. Thanks for the invitation. I, I had a wonderful time.
0: You're listening to the future Tech health podcast with Richard Jacobs. until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues or we at least have a family member or close relation that had has or will have them in the future. epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.